Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with reviews, critics, and criticism. Let's get straight to it this week. My guest is... Stuart Stubbs. And in terms of uh, music and criticism, here's a story so far. So I... And the editor, which I find weird saying that, but I'm the editor and the founder of Loud and Quiet magazine, which is a music magazine that I started in my bedroom when I left university. And um, as a fanzine, very much printed on a home printer at that point. And um, that was 13 years ago now. And I then worked at NME for a little time uh, on that picture desk as a very junior member of in the office whilst I kind of printed this fanzine at home and um, then I left there after two years and gave this a go full time basically Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah I am the editor of the magazine I guess I kind of I commission it most things we take pictures from our writers we've got a big big team of writers now freelancers and photographers and illustrators but I guess my job is to choose what's going in and I still try and write as much as I can, although I end up doing inevitably all of the boring things and not not so much of the fun things, which is why you start, you essentially you start doing it um, with that in mind of I'm going to go and interview all these people and, and you know, swan about being a, a writer. And then if you are the editor, unfortunately, you do have to do all of the rubbish as well. Mm. So you do less and less of the writing, unfortunately. But I still try and... I'm in quite a good spot now because I can do the things I really, really want to do. Stuart and I had a great chat in the uh, Loud and Quiet HQ in Hackney uh, in London uh, a little while ago talking about the freedom of free, the curse of green, uh, the reader's biting point um, and the importance of not confusing or condescending the reader. Um, So it's an interesting chat and let's get straight to it. Um, Let's speak... I was going to say, like looking through recent issues, I feel like there are certainly a lot of editors that do that are much less hands-on in terms of mm. the actual copy and things. Like yeah. it's kind of it's 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 nice to it's nice to not have editors in the kind of lofty position, separate office, kind of not not really you know sort of giving a broad direction to a magazine, but not really kind of getting into the, the yeah the yeah actual what makes it up yeah absolutely I think it's important to keep an up keep in mind why you started it I don't think anyone starts a 
a fanzine or a magazine uh, by themselves with the intention of I want to be the guy that goes and does all the post run and um, and all the boring things. They kind of do it because they want to be a writer. So I think once you've gotten got to a point. Where, where you're a bit more established and it's a bit busier it's good to try and remind yourself that that's why you do it and mm. you want to you want to put your opinions across and write about the things you want to write about so I do try and do that as much as I can still yeah cool I mean in terms of other things that are quite unique about Loud and Quiet I mean one is that it's an independent magazine that exists in 2018 mm-hmm. which has you know become something of a rarity also obviously that you've been at the helm of it since it started which again those two things don't happen a, a huge amount um, one thing I've noticed talking to people at, at other publications, um, I was, uh, a, few, well, a future or a past episode, depending on when this goes out, is, uh, is with the, uh, the entertainment director at Shortlist, is that, <laughs> strange to draw a parallel between Shortlist and Loud and Quiet, but they're both publications that feel like they sprang up as alternatives or counterpoints to what was already around. In their case, it's kind of, you know, the lads mags and sort of, uh, and kind of the esquires of this world. Um, and something that's happened in both cases is that it feels like a lot of the publications that, that Loud and Quiet is a counterpoint to don't exist anymore. Um, and so I'm curious how, whether that's changed your outlook at all, whether you've thought kind of, okay, these, what these people have done that we were an alternative to has failed anyway. Um, mm-hmm. And also just why do you think that Loud and Quiet has, has been able to endure in, in what's you know, not always a very easy place to exist? yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I did start the magazine at the time, it was in 2005, and there weren't many, the free press as, as it is now in the shortlist of the world, and there, there is kind of more of that now, but at the time there wasn't really, Stall Pigeon, which was, was around the, had launched around the same time, we were going at the same time early on, um, but there wasn't any magazines that I liked, so the reason as you say, I, I did genuinely start Loud and Quiet as an alternative, purely in a quite an egotistical way of thinking, I don't like the things that Enemy are writing about. And I don't, I never really got into Q and Mojo. I felt too, you know, I was 22 and they were writing about Neil Young and I wasn't into that. So the idea was, let's just make something that I like. And, you know, that's the cliche that musicians say to me all the time. Yeah, we sure. make music for ourselves and if anyone else likes it, that's a bonus. Um, and it did kind of feel like that and I suppose yeah we relaunched the magazine two months ago like two months ago and pure coincidence it was the same week that Enemy announced that they were done mm-hmm. that that was the end um, of that print magazine and it did feel kind of weird because Enemy was kind of always the thing that I thought could have been done better especially when I started you know I I it was an alternative to that and now that's gone but I suppose what's happened since I started Loud and Quiet is that new music music has become more popular like mm-hmm. music used to be even back in 2005 music if you were into music if you were a music fan you were a bit you know that was kind of a little bit niche no, I mean not yeah. huge not like it was in the 80s necessarily but and if this isn't too too lofty it feels like culture in general I think maybe is, is a little less tribal than it was. Mm. There's room there's room in people's lives for sport and music and film. There's room in people's lives to not just like metal or, you know, techno or whatever. Yeah. And that didn't always feel like it was the case. Yeah, absolutely. So what happened was early on, the idea of like our magazine was to feature new bands. That was the big thing. It was like new bands aren't being featured in on the covers of magazines. They're being featured in a 
few pages inside, but not throughout the whole thing, and certainly not on the cover. Now that is obvious. That's not a gr- that's not a groundbreaking thing because loads of people put new artists on the cover and new because mu- music is just everywhere thanks to streaming and festivals. You know the boom of festivals. Everyone goes to a festival now, whereas back then you kind of only went if you were a bit of a nerd about music and you loved it enough to go and camp in a field. I mean, who does that? Mm-hmm. But now that's a normal thing. And similarly, featuring new artists is and kind of more left field artists is a more normal thing you know the guardian do it and they do it great but the idea that a broadsheet features kind of abstract weirder music back then was kind of not really the thing yeah um and then if they would do it it would feel like it was perhaps in it was in a corner of its own like when the guardian would have new band of the day that ran for a very long time yeah but it had its it had its corner it wasn't kind of it didn't permeate through the whole Absolutely, the whole yeah. Site. Whereas now it kind of is. So like, so we are no longer an alternative to that, I guess, because there are other people doing doing that. So, but I've always been so close to it because it is something that I started and I've kind of got blinkers on and I don't really look at what everyone else is doing. I don't really read that many other magazines at all or websites. I'm not very good online anyway. I don't really do social media and things. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I've just got my head down and I'm, I am kind of still concentrating on it in the way that I did early on, which was just go out, find the music that I really like right now and write about it. And it really is as simple as that. It's still as simple as that, even though I've just got some, a lot of other friends and people and writers helping me do the writing about it. But it is still um, just quite a, a focused, heads down, the blinkered thing even though I'm fully aware of the fact that there are a lot of people that do similar things to us, a lot more now than, than used to. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think much has changed over 13 years in terms of the styles of music that you cover? Uh, your first cover was Pete Doherty, for example. Mm. Do you think you'd put his 2018 equivalent on the cover, or has the focus of what Loud and Quiet is about shifted? Yeah, it, it, has, it, it shifted. Again, I'm going to come across like a complete egotistical megalomaniac here but, please do but, it, it makes for great <laughs> The so Pete Doherty was on the first cover I wrote the first issue of the magazine the first few issues of the magazine completely by myself under a lot of fake names mm-hmm. to make it seem like it was a big thing mm-hmm. um, I mean it looked like a total piece of crap so that wasn't the real problem like well, I remember getting, I don't know, this probably wasn't issue two, but I remember seeing one relatively early on when I was working at Warp with Foles on the cover, and I think it was mm. the first time I'd seen Foles on the cover. Right, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. yeah. So, I, and the Pete Ducky one was, it was, <laughs> it wasn't an interview with Pete Ducky, it was literally me writing about Pete Ducky because I loved the Libertines. Right. And they'd just split up. So, um, what has happened in terms of, like, to answer the question of has the focus of the music changed, it has changed for two reasons. One, I've just grown up a bit and the things I was loved when I was 22 I maybe don't love so much anymore you know I wouldn't get into the 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 Libertines equivalent I'm sure when I was 22 and thought the Libertines were the best band in the world Mm. there were 35 year olds who thought look at all these people into Libertines like I've seen that and been there and done that and they've you know that moved on in what they liked as music so there's that there's the fact that my tastes are always changing and I'm just always listening to more and more different types of music but also we've got a big team of writers now and it there is a 
kind of a community feel to what we do and the people that work on the magazine that it would be quite unfair to me for, for me to be kind of shut down all of their ideas or who they want to write about and say well no we're only writing about the libertines because that's who I like or whoever yeah. you know so but at the same time it's quite nice it's quite refreshing to hear that a, a magazine's remit is still kind of tethered to your your personal to my te- yeah yeah, because, is, yeah. Know, so so often you hear about you know people having having the pressure of you know covers that don't sell with, with magazines that aren't free and you know people it, things like this having you know there being a sort of a shareholder hand in it or a committee decision you know so mm. it's quite nice that there's still a bit of a singular voice yeah there. yeah there is kind of a, yeah a um, dictatorship behind the whole thing i guess yeah <laughs> a gentle dictatorship um does being a free magazine give you more or less freedom do you think uh, it's always given us more from the beginning because w- when I was when I I started working at NME um, on their picture desk when at the exact same time that I started doing the magazine and I was there for two years and for the first year I loved it and it kind of taught me a lot about how to the how people put a magazine together and like how a real big company does it as opposed to me in my bedroom and on my way to and from work and it the one big obsession that the editor at the time had was um, does this sell on the cover will this will people pick this up and there's like a there's this these ridiculous sciences to a how maybe not anymore but back then there used to be this science of green doesn't sell don't put it in green it's funny you should say that that literally again it will depend when people hear this literally the last uh, episode of this I did I was told the exact same thing by by someone else yeah that green doesn't sell and (laughs) um, the way the amount of cover lines you put on and where they are and where the eye goes to on a magazine rack in a shop Mm -hmm. and and all of these problems and I was uh, maybe this is a very naive thing but I was quite you know uh, I had my own opinion on this anyway and I wouldn't say I didn't wouldn't necessarily say this at NME but I always thought well the problem is you know they they used to manage to um put everything down to like the color or oh it was because that font was wrong or it's mm-hmm. because of that and maybe it was actually because you put Dave Grohl on the cover again like no one ever thought that, that was the issue yeah you know yeah. or maybe it's because it's another oasis yeah. cover I think this is that this is actually a problem that's that's a bit of a pandemic through the music industry at large is mm. that there's a real desire for people to claim to know why something worked or didn't work yeah forgetting that the whole thing is inherently emotion based and all the whims of people's opinions and things you know and so uh talking to other people about why why free sheets weren't picked up they uh, someone else i spoke to said that a factor that people often didn't consider is that it was just raining that day and mm. so people weren't out the magazines were getting soggy, you know, like sometimes it's as simple as that. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, I do feel like there's a bit of a, you know, everybody wants to be able to say that they're on top of it and that they understand why everything's worked and why everything hasn't. And yeah. It's not always that easy. Absolutely. And so, but I mean, I was at the same time aware of the fact that there is, if you are getting people to pay for something, there is a question of that fan base and there is a question of how many people will spend the money on if it's an uh, unknown artist or if it's a new artist. And because we were doing new artists, it kind of made sense for it to be free. And we wanted as many people to be able to pick it up and see it as possible and take a punt on it early on, especially. And so we've always had this freedom of, well, we put them on the cover and hopefully people will just pick it up 
And even now, we've got the current cover is uh, Serpent with Feet, who a lot of people might not know still. Maybe our readership, our core readership know mm-hmm. who he is. But if you're in a record shop and you see a copy of Loud and Quiet, then it costs you nothing to try it out. And maybe you'll discover a new artist that you love. And maybe you wouldn't if you, if you, were, if you had to pay for it in Smiths or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I think it has, it has given us a, a freedom in, in our choices of cover stars, especially, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Um, has, do you think your growth has ever been hampered by what you choose to cover? For example, um, have you ever had to resist attempts to have a paid-for wraparound cover like mm-hmm. some people do? Or, or have you sort of known that your ad spends would skyrocket if you put an unsuitable artist on? You know, where do you, where do you draw that line? I guess. Yeah, we um, we have turned down cover apps, and we've turned down um, we've turned down. Basically, we have we have a, a a rule, or I have a rule, which is that we won't trade any advertising reven- any revenue for um, something paid that mm-hmm. we you know because I think as soon as you do that you the reputation you've built up as something that is honest or has some kind of integrity as soon as people can tell as soon as you've got a you know a a top man cover for example Mm -hmm. and then inside an article about clothes from top man you know people know that that article is directly related to that wraparound and i totally understand why loads of people do it and i get it's harder and harder to make money doing what we do but it's always just felt like not for us, you know? Yeah. Um, I feel like everyone uh, who, every reader has a kind of, has a biting point at the point that they've, they've seen too much of that kind of shit mm. to, to accept anymore. And you never know where every individual's line is. No, yeah. But every time you take something like that, you get a little bit closer to more people's line. That's yeah, how yeah. I see it. And then, you know, at some point people are like, I'm reading, I'm reading more advertorial than I am you know, impassioned music writing and I'm done with this entirely. Yeah. And I think most people are 
getting more and more okay with it, which is, I think, a really good sign. Like, people these days are fine. Like, 10 years ago, people would be upset if their favourite artist song was on an advert, you know? Mm. Whereas now that's not the case, I don't think. I think people... I think music fans and people generally accept that it's really hard to make money as a musician and similarly as a, a magazine. So they, they're okay with it. They're like, well, you know, I know this is clearly like... But they've got to fund it somehow. So like, I think people are, are, are better with it. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that we'd, we'd never... There's certain things that I'm sure we would never, ever do. But um, as things go on, and, and I'm sure you know, we will probably have to start to think about different ways to fund what we do and, and, and make and make it work and you know those things are real things mm-hmm. we the the concept of in air quotes selling out or um we're fortunate in the fact that we haven't really been asked to yet <laughs> you yeah. know i'm sure i've got a price if you know if somebody wanted to give us loads and loads and loads of money for something i'm sure we'd you know we would you know maybe we'd break on it but so far it's not been something that we've we've kind of considered doing i'm i'm a bit too stubborn for it I okay think. yeah um what aspects of a loud and quiet review do you think tell you that it's from loud and quiet rather than anywhere else mm that's a good question um i don't know really i think what we try to do is um I think we try to make our readers feel that they are already informed. Um, we don't want to patronise them mm-hmm. and over-explain things. So it's kind of a balancing point because um, if you read some really niche music reviews and they're name-dropping in things that you have no idea about, you can end up feeling quite dumb and a bit alienated and think oh they've referenced the second album by this thing and I don't even know what that word is you know I guess it's a a tricky balance for you guys as well in that some of the artists you cover and you know you assume a level of knowledge from a music fan but equally you're available somewhere where literally anyone could pick it up yeah yeah so it's tough so it's like how much how much detail do you put in there when you're talking about I think you, you basically take each review by into its own kind of account. Like if you were reviewing a Pete Doherty solo album, I don't think you need to say Pete Doherty, formerly of the Libertines. Mm-hmm. But maybe if you were writing for Grazia or the Daily Mail, maybe that needs to go in there, mm-hmm. you know, or, or they feel it needs to go in there. And we, I guess it's kind of tr- trying to work out what you think your readership know, what they don't know, and what they're going to be you don't want to talk down to them. I think that's the, that's the key to it. And there are certain things, this probably wouldn't, wouldn't be noticed by anyone in mm. terms of them being able to say, oh, I can tell that was written loud and quiet. But there are certain words and cliches that, that I try to make sure our reviews don't have. Well, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, my next question would be, what, what do you think is and isn't useful to include in a review? So, I mean, you, yeah. you may as well apply that to, to the loud and quiet style. Guide, yeah, like. sure. So, I mean, I think one of the most important things, which I think a lot of people forget, and we forget it sometimes, we're certainly not above this by any means, but context is is key to it. Um, you know, 
to just go off and start rambling about someone's fifth album, um, unless they're a very well-known person and, and it is quite obvious that everyone knows who that person is, then you do need to get a bit of a bit of that in there. What kind of things like where they're from, who they, you know, mm-hmm. are they a, are they abandoned things, like. The essential thing, though, I would say is you've got to you've got to say what it sounds like, mm-hmm. and a lot of the times, you know, that's missing from reviews sometimes. Yeah. Or we'll we get submitted lots and lots of stuff. We have like different contributor inboxes on emails, and people send in things, and some of them are great and really well written, but they've actually forgotten to say what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like, well, that's, that's a problem because this is lovely and funny or, you know, all these different things. But you've not, like, the point of the review is essentially to say it's, you know, what it is, mm. what it is really, you know, like, um, and I think that's something that people tend to forget. They need to be, when I worked at Enemy, even though I worked on, on I did work experience there before I worked there. That's how I got. Right, my foot in the door. I did work experience when I was a student, and as part of that, you have to write a review. They give you an album to review, and then at the end of the week, they give you some feedback on it. One of the writers sits down and gives you feedback on it. And I remember I wrote something, and I thought it was great because I was writing it from what I thought a review should be written like. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the biggest misconception, especially that people who are doing it for the first time, they think, oh, I know how I should write a review and what they sound like. But then that's how you fall into the trap of basically hitting all the cliches possible, um, which is exactly what I did. I did that for years. And when I read like the things I wrote in those first issues of the magazine, they're appalling. They're so terrible. But um, the, the person I showed it to, I was very proud. I was like, here's my review. And he read it and he tore it apart it was full of spelling mistakes it was it was, it was bad mm-hmm. I was really hurt um, but he said one thing which was you should put a jo- like if you can put a joke in you can put like a lot like something funny in the whole thing then people will remember it more than anything else right um, and I've kind of I don't necessarily do that myself not all the time but there is I think maybe something to that like making it light hearted and making it fun and an enjoyable thing Mm. because you can come across very earnest i do think that's lost in reviews sometimes is that yeah the experience of listening to music is supposed to be enjoyable Mm. and perhaps playing devil's advocate here perhaps if you're doing it every day for a living that can get lost when it comes to writing your seventh review of the week yeah yeah definitely certainly for the person reading the review the experience of listening to that record isn't work it's fun yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah so you do need to remember that but it is essentially a fun thing yeah sure Um, have you ever enjoyed or suffered unexpected repercussions or consequences for a review or a piece that Loud and Quiet has run this might be uh, an artist reaction, it might be a fan mm. backlash or celebration. We've generally been pretty fortunate on that. Um, I think that might be down to our, our size and our reach and the people that read it, I think, get what we're about and what we do. I'm extremely paranoid about, I think in a good way, 
about what we publish and the way things are presented and things are said. I think um, the, a big part of being an editor, I guess, is you want to make sure it's in the tone of what, you, what you're doing. But you also, I, I try to be as careful as possible to not strip away somebody else's voice and they've written it. I don't want to like rewrite it and I want to make sure that their opinion is, is how it is. And sometimes we run lots of things that I, I might hate a record and someone might give it a nine and, and our rule is like that runs as a nine and right. vice versa. There's things that I love and someone's like gives it a four and I'm like, oh, that's a shame. Mm. I love that. And they, but that's kind of the way it goes. And um, most people are, are positive about what we do everything certain things like gender and politics and representation i take really really super seriously and make sure and, and do my best to make sure that it's all as it should be mm -hmm. and fair we had it the thing is now because of twitter and things i'm people are very quick to tell you what they think of something and they're only ever going to tell you that something's shit aren't they yeah um so like yesterday for example we posted a thing we've got a, a column in the magazine which we called money kind of ironically but it's a light-hearted piece written by a guy called andrew anderson he's a really funny guy a really good writer and he's wrote this piece about the mega mega geeks basically huge mm -hmm. gigs that fans put on and the headline on it was something like Last year, 263 million people were tricked into going to see Guns N' Roses. Oh, I, saw, I remember this. And that was, that was simply like, because there's a bit in his piece about the mega gig, which is a very tongue-in-cheek piece. And um, and they had the high, highest grossing tour last year, Guns N' Roses, and 263 million people went to see them or whatever. So that was the headline, and we tweeted that out with just this you know the the lead in on the tweet was why aren't more people writing about this which i thought was very clear that that is a joke obviously no one's yeah. right back because it's it's not important well and it? if you follow enough journalism you're used to that sentence as a trope you know <laughs> yeah. applied to you know kind of failing nhs hospitals yeah. kind of things of real a real real, real important significance yeah. exactly but we did have reply responses to that tweet from people who answered that question of why people weren't writing about that mm. and you kind of think oh okay like sometimes things don't land on twitter do they like like jo a joke doesn't necessarily land and that's when people tend to get they tend to get upset about things we because we we're also very we we tend to have a very positive outlook on things in the magazine like we don't need we we don't really needlessly slag things off. A lot of the bands and artists that we feature are new, so it's kind of like if you can't be constructive with your criticism. We don't want to just get the knives out. We're not slagging off Justin Bieber in, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so because most of the things that we do are positive, most people are kind of happy to say, oh, that's good, or not, not anything at all. We don't tend to get much of a backlash. We did get a hand written letter which was something I didn't expect to happen we featured an artist last year called Noga Erez who is from Tel Aviv and we featured her as, as we feature a new artist there's a new artist profile on her and we ran that and she spoke about being her music and and that was kind of it and we ran it and I didn't see anything 
wrong with it. Um, but we did receive a letter, handwritten letter, which we never received letters anyway mm -hmm. in the post, um, of of someone who was, you know, they they did take offence to it that we were featuring a, an artist from Tel Aviv, from Israel, and that they hadn't spoken about politics in their interview. Right. Um, so it's kind of a minefield, you know. Things yeah, like, it's a lot to unpack. Yeah, because you kind of think, oh, okay. So you, you're always, I'm always hyper aware of that, you know, of everything. And just when you think you've got everything covered and everything's good, you, you know, that'll happen. And I don't really know what that, I mean, that's a conversation for another time. But essentially, yeah. that's kind of the only thing that recently okay. springs out. It's yeah. obviously stuck with me, otherwise I wouldn't have remembered that. <laughs> Um, so in publishing an independent magazine and in deciding what, what, what it covers, what belongs in its pages, what's been the biggest mistake that you've avoided making and the biggest mistake that you haven't avoided? Mm. The, I think the biggest mistake I've avoided, I think it comes down to this thing I was saying about not looking at everyone else and not not worrying what other people are doing. Because I think as soon as you do that, you start to be concerned that you're not covering the right things or you should be, you know, like... And, and then it's no longer the thing you started doing. You know, if you, if you, if you consider yourself to have rivals, then, you're, then you can become quite obsessed with that. And you think, oh, they're covering that, and we've not covered that, and we should be doing more of that kind of thing. And then you're just trying to turn into them, aren't you, essentially? So mm. the, I think the greatest asset to, to the magazine is probably that, is probably the fact that we kind of just, like, have this very, very simple and idealistic way of choosing what we feature, which is things we like, things the writers like, and we don't really think that much beyond that. I mean, there are certain things we think, which is like, but really, it is, it is as simple as that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and the other thing was a mistake. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. The, I guess the yeah. This if this if this were a job interview, which I stress that it isn't, <laughs> uh, this would be the this would be the what is your biggest weakness? Yeah. Question, yeah. What's the what's the biggest mistake that's been made in terms of loud and quiet? What would you do differently if you could? That it's you know what it probably isn't a it probably isn't a content thing. Um. Because I feel like there are certainly things that we probably have featured, like like a few bits and pieces that we featured, probably through thinking, oh, we should do that, or or just you know, especially early on, things that were like a bit buzzy and getting a bit caught up in the excitement of it and going, oh, we should feature that and say it's great. But I think that is also just part part for the course, and you can only feature things that you like at that moment. You can't think too much into the future of am I going to like this in four years or am I going to be embarrassed about saying it's brilliant because that's what music is isn't it it's about becoming really obsessed with Britney Spears for a week and then the next week thinking oh what was I thinking I actually like Nick Cave like that's mm. but that's fine that's that's what it's about so I think you've kind of got to just embrace that but the, the bit of advice that I give to anyone that starts a magazine or starts doing what, something like we've done, it comes down to like, it's an advertising thing, it's my mistake. Mm -hmm. Which is like, our revenue, our revenue stream is advertising, That's we just simply sell ads into the magazine. Um, 
And early on, I had no idea. I still don't really have much idea about it. But early on, I really had no idea about it. And I would... The first time somebody got in touch and said, how much does it cost for us to put an advert in your magazine? Which I hadn't even thought about. I said uh, just a very low ball number because I was so amazed that somebody would even consider it. And uh, advertisers never forget those numbers, no. ever, ever. No. So it was... It, so that's the thing that I kind of tell people in terms of in terms of that. But we've not I don't think we've had any real howlers. We've not really printed anything that was like really abusive. Mm-hmm. Maybe we have and I don't know and I don't even realize it. <laughs> well, if Twitter's good for anything, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll hear, <laughs> we'll hear about, about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um a, a big question to to almost end on. Uh, what do you suspect is the future for indie print journalism? Uh, a couple of options that I imagine in the future are a sort of vinyl-esque move to a rarer, pricier artefact, or maybe just a straight resurgence as people realise it's not very comfortable to read long reads online. Uh, yeah. what, where do you think things are headed? Um, I think the vinyl analogy is good. I think it's probably... I think all print press is kind of going that way. The the free the the free flood the market print as many as you can hand them out everywhere model I think works if you're a publication like Shortlist or Time Out where you're a guide and you're kind of that makes sense to them a lot of people have said to me for years well, why don't you hand it out on the tube why don't you do that but it is pretty niche what we do still even though a lot of people a lot more people like music now. But yeah. and you could I suppose you could argue that those kind of publications are they've got their hands tied a little in how broad they generally need to be yeah. you know, even when they feature a new artist it's a new artist that's in Steven Spielberg's film for yeah, example yeah yeah exactly yeah well that's the thing that happened when when enemy went free a lot of people's reaction original reaction was oh this is brilliant because it's going to free them from the shackles of that cover price and they'd be able to put they'd be able to stop putting Noel Gallagher on the cover or, or you know kind of established that and they can do anything they want but of course that didn't prove to be the case because they had to actually just go broader so they started with Rihanna and yeah. then they went to you know you know James I don't know James Corden I might be thinking of shortlist but uh, you know there, like, was, there was a Chris Moyles cover Chris Moyles yeah uh, yeah so yeah exactly that when you're when you're going for like numbers if it's all about numbers you do need to be as broad as possible but because most magazines don't do that and they're kind of going a bit more niche. I think I think Wire magazine is a really great example of a magazine that does what it does. It does it's not trying to be the biggest and it's not trying to make the most money, but it's got this core audience that it's so niche and it's so kind of its thing. And people still buy it and they still subscribe to it. And I think that's probably the model because um, the number thing I don't think works in the internet age essentially if you're, if you're trying to do something a bit niche anyway I think it's probably going to go that way mm-hmm. yeah. okay um, well thanks before, before we go there's uh, one thing that I do with everyone on the podcast who is a writer and that is basically a five question quite well question a five piece quiz okay. where I've taken five phrases or segments uh, some of them were written by you, some of them were not written by you. Okay. Uh, and it's all about whether you can tell the difference, basically. Okay. So here's the first one. Uh, the final two songs feel as if they're from a different record entirely. Calm, packed with melodic succulence, largely absent elsewhere, and stripped of the electronic hectoring of the album's first hour. 
Does that sound like, do you think that's you or is that not you? That's too good for me. That's not me. Uh, it's not you, actually. <laughs> right. That's uh, Sam Walton on Utopia by Bjork. Yeah. Um, number two, few of the song topics touch upon current events, instead depicting the never-ending war that is romance. Oh, I don't think that's me either. Uh, you're right, it's not you. Yeah. That was uh, Andy Beater and Pitchfork on uh, Omar Sodeman. These are good. You're going to read mine and it's going to sound <laughs> terrible. Like, a really good song. Uh, number three. It's the balance done right. Fun but not a joke. Accomplished but not po-faced or snobby. Like the Slim Shady LP or Niles Barkley's St. Elsewhere. No, not me. That one was you, actually. Was it? Yeah, <laughs> that was you a long time ago on, uh, on Biffy Clyro side project, Marmaduke Duke. Ah, there you go. Um, okay, number four. You know when a magazine is about to go tits up, it's the issue after they do a reader's survey. I, I wish that was me, but that's definitely not me. That's not you. That was uh, Pete Hebblethwaite talking about the story <laughs> back in the day. That's great. Um, and finally, number five. You can never tell them you love their record now and have them believe it. You're an evil snooping journalist and no one likes you. That is 100% me. That's <laughs> you, yeah, from the uh, A to Z of making a print magazine. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's four out of five. Not okay, that's not bad. Um, and that's everything. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thank you very much, Adam. Cheers. First and foremost, thanks to Stuart Stubbs for being my guest this week and for letting us behind the curtain of Loud and Quiet. Um, if you'd like to get in touch with us, it's readslike a four at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and we're on Instagram at readslike a four. Um, and you can usually find uh, further reading, little extra notes for each episode on Twitter every Friday once each new episode goes up. Um, we're particularly looking for food writers for future episodes. If you're a food writer or you know someone who is, please do get in touch. Readslike a four at gmail.com. Uh, but that's pretty much it. So if you're enjoying the show please do subscribe or uh, drop us a review on itunes every little helps us reach new people uh, i'll be back next week next friday with a brand new critic until then thanks so much for listening cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.